at a certain point when it's someone else's money and it's someone else's risk, I tend to take a few less risks. <laughs> whereas when it's mine, I'm willing to roll the dice. You know, we've, we've burned ourselves a little bit. We're getting about a quarter of the amount of fruit at this point that we should because I've made mistakes. But at the end of the day, the vine doesn't know. You know, we work a little harder, we get a little less fruit. It's not as economical, but we didn't get into it for that. Welcome to the Winemakers Podcast. In each episode, we meet one winemaker and get the chance to hear their story on their turf. We walk through the vineyard, taste their wine, and share a home-cooked meal. If you haven't already, visit thewinemakersseries.com to order your season one case, one bottle for each winemaker. Then pull cork, press play, and enjoy. On this episode of The Winemakers, we meet Anthony Yount, an extremely talented guy who found his way in life at a bizarrely young age and is crafting the estate of his dreams stick by stick, row by row, brick by brick, one animal at a time. Here's a reminder that Passarobles still is the Wild West, one of the few places on the planet you can grow both full-bodied Bordeaux and intricate Rhones. Last year, the wine spectator and the wine enthusiast both had significantly more Paso wines ranked in the top 25 than any other region in the world. And yet, it is still a community of cowboys and farmers, like Anthony, making wine with crazy names like Ditch Digger and F*** Chair. While moulding his estate and scheming up names, Anthony is still running Denner's 130-acre, multi-million dollar operation. With his track record, he could be making wine at any winery in the world, yet he chooses to make tiny quantities clinging to the edge of York Mountain while watching his livestock, vines and daughter grow. My end goal is to be able to sit down to dinner in five years and everything that we eat comes off this property. We grow the lettuce, we made the wine, we raised the chicken or the lamb or the pig or the steer and, I mean, down to the herbs. From Cellar Media, this is The Winemakers, Paso Robles, California. I'm Louise Houghton. Right in the middle of the winding two-lane highway that runs from Paso Robles to Cambria through the Santa Lucia Mountains, there's a nondescript dirt road shaded by oak trees. Near the end of that road, if you can make it up the almost vertical driveway, you'll find yourself at the first level of the Royal Nonsuch Farm. This is where I first meet Anthony, wearing a t-shirt, well-worn jeans and boots. He greets me with an ear-to-ear grin as we head out to tour his property. Waylon, you coming? Yeah. Waylon is the dog. I'm going to just have him sit bitch here. And yeah, he was named after Waylon Jennings. Is that all right? Yeah. All right. Can you move over a little yeah. bit, Come on, Waylon. Come on. At this point, I'm sandwiched in next to Waylon in Anthony's pale ocean blue 1972 Land Cruiser with no doors and no top and clearly no muffler. All right. What is this here on the right? This is Claret Blanche. Everything here is on bush vine, so it just sprawls out. That's why there's just one stake. Okay. The barn is actually where my folks live. 
here. Yeah. So we built the barn and skinned the inside as a house. And they live here half the year with us, help us in the vineyard and with children. And it's a three-tiered property with the farm at the bottom. As we climb upwards in the Land Cruiser, we pass his white one-storey house with a wraparound porch. A little further up, we pass the cliché big red barn. Ten more minutes of ascending past rows of grapevines, we reach the top of the vineyard. Four blocks of Grenache here. This is Graciano. Uh, we bought Monastrel uh, from the nursery, which is supposed to be a Morved clone from Yecla in the south of Spain. Found out last year that it is not Monastrel, but it's Graciano, which is a grape they grow in Spain as well. What do you mean you found out? Um, a few of us in the area planted the same selection of Monastrel, and none of us thought it looked like Monastrel, and finally someone sent a cutting in to UC Davis for genetic testing, and they said, well, it's not Morved, it's Graciano. So okay. we found out. For me, uh, perfection is uninteresting, so we like things a little more wild here. Our driving tour ends with spectacular views and vines in every direction. So, super steep site, surrounded by forests. We have 25 acres here. We've only planted seven. Historically, the road we're on is called Shadow Canyon Road, and it was a bootleggers road during Prohibition. It was all gravel, and it used to wash out in the winter. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a horse trail that goes out the backside and drops onto Dover Canyon Road that um, the police couldn't get over. So all the bootleggers up here used to make their shine, and then when the police found them, they'd run it back over the top, and they couldn't catch them. So there wasn't really a lot of grapevines out here, but this AVA was formed in 1982. Um, and that's not the AVA, the Paso AVA. It's not Paso, saying. yeah. It's okay. its own AVA. And so it is sort of this historic area. But what really attracted us to the site was uh, there's so many different soil types and so many different exposures here. On our little tour, you could see... A, just how steep it was, uh, but also we have sandy soils, we have some clay soils, we have limestone, we have sandstone, we have mudstone, and each one of those is going to give a different flavor profile to it. And for me, wines should be complex, and you build complexity by having different characteristics that you can put together. And so having those different aspects and soil types, I, I think, will be more interesting together than they will be on their own. your story. Okay. You, know, you started off, obviously you grew up in... St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. The wine capital of the world. Yeah. Drinking yeah. beer. Drinking beer. <laughs> Drinking Budweiser and Boone's Farm was my version of wine. Okay. So we had a little piece of property that we rented in outstate Missouri on a river and our landlords had cattle. I used to help them with branding and castrating and we processed chickens on the ranch, buck bales in the summer, whatever they'd let me do. And uh, I wanted to get into ag, and I knew I didn't want to be in commodity agriculture, corn and soybeans and pigs, everything that was happening in the Midwest. And uh, I looked into Cal Poly, which had a great agribusiness program, and that sort of got me out here. I wasn't into wine yet, but um, the lambs are going. <laughs> Speaking of commodity agriculture... Um, I thought I'm either going to like grow avocados or write wine labels or 
brand baby lettuce or something like that, something real romantic. And I guess I ended up in probably the most romantic of all that, making wine. Like a lot of winemakers, Anthony's journey in wine started with one memorable bottle. I was on a road trip between my senior year in high school and freshman year in college with my brother in Montana, and he took me to this great restaurant in Missoula, and he's a little older, and told the waitress I want to drink this bottle of 98 Beaucastel, which is a Grenache-based blend from France. Yeah. But my brother's not 21, and the only way I'll order it is if you'll serve him. So we ordered it. She served it to me, and that was like the eye-opener of, like, wine can be better than Boone's Farm and Budweiser. Um, that was my revelation wine that turned me on to drinking wine. So back to your story, um, you went to study, realized that you started liking wine. Yep. And then how did you end up interning at Denner? Well, I took a viticulture class uh, as part of my general electives and just absolutely loved it. My brother, same brother who turned me on to that 98 book, Castell, came out for my 21st birthday. We went wine tasting and we actually tasted at Denner. Denner Vineyards is a stunning 156-acre estate planted in 1999 by Ron Denner. In a previous life, Ron owned Ditchwich dealerships all over the northwest United States and made a bunch of money when everyone got cable TV installed in the 80s and 90s. Every ditch dug was by one of Ron's machines. That's why some of Denner's most famous wines are called the Ditch Digger and the Dirt Worshipper. And Ron and Marilyn Denner were doing the tasting. We'll head right that way. And uh, I love the wines. I love the property. The vineyard was spectacular. They gave us a whole tour of the Gravity Flow system, got to go through the vineyard. And uh, Brian, who was the winemaker at the time, um, Marilyn had told me he was looking for an intern. And I said, well, I'd like to apply. And she gave me a cell phone, and I called him up the next day, and he said, well, I'm not going to hire anyone that Marilyn wants me to hire, and hung up on me. <laughs> oh, no. So about two weeks later, the posting was online on a job site, and I applied again and came in for an interview, didn't mention anything about being there or having met Marilyn, and I got the job. And uh, I did that internship at Denner and just absolutely loved the industry, the people I met. It was one of the few jobs you could have and drink beer at work. Yeah. You know, and no one was pissed about. So um, I came back to work right after I graduated. I worked another harvest at Denner and we're still a small company, but we were really small then. And I helped with the book work and helped in the tasting room, cleaned the drains, did the bottling line, whatever they needed. And then when harvest came, obviously it was full-time plus plus. But after a couple of vintages, I wanted to see something else, do something else. So I landed an internship down in Argentina at Viña Cobos in Mendoza. And I was getting ready to fly down there. I was going to do a little Spanish immersion thing, then Uh hit harvest. January in St. Louis and the weather can be spotty. It can be snowing one day and then 70 the next day. And I took my brother's motorcycle out for a spin and hit a patch of black ice and shattered my kneecap, Uh, 16 pieces. So it was the day before I was supposed to leave. So I did not do Argentina. 
Winemakers podcast is supported by winerist.com. Winerist.com is dedicated to making your wine and food travel simple. Discover experiences in over 130 destinations worldwide that are curated to fulfill all your wine and food dreams. You've heard from the experts. Now explore the regions that inspire them with winerist.com. I lived in my parents' basement for six months doing physical therapy and picked up a working for my dad who had a small ad agency just to stay busy and learn something else. And as soon as I was back on two feet, I packed up my truck and drove right out here. And I didn't really have a job at the time. I um, called the winemaker I'd met through Denner and said, I'm looking for something. Do you know of anything? And that was Chris Cherry at Via Creek. And he said, well, I'm looking. And I sat on my tailgate in 105-degree weather in a parking lot in Salina, Kansas, and had like an hour-long conversation with Chris about how it might work. And two days later, I was sitting in his living room, and we hatched a plan for me to go over to Via Creek and become the cellar master. Chris Cherry said, well, when are you going to make your own wine? I said, I don't know. I really want to make whites, and no one really does that here in Paso. And he said, well, what do you want to make? I want to make Grenache Blanc and Roussan. Say, what vineyard do you want to use? Well, I want to use Self Family Vineyard for Grenache Blanc, and I want to use James Berry Vineyard for Roussan. He said, okay, let's go do it. So he gave me my first barrel and made some introductions. Actually, supplied me with my first ton of Roussan from James Berry Vineyard. And I learned very early on that as a winemaker, you're only as good as your grapes. And so you always want to work with farmers that are better than you are. And I'd had the Roussan from James Berry Vineyard from a few other producers and really love Roussan as a grape uh, just because it's sort of so textural and savory and interesting. Um, and Justin Smith, who owns James Berry Vineyard, well, it was his dad at the time, now Justin, um, they're the best farmers in the area. Uh, they've been doing it for now two, two generations, and that says a lot. Yeah. So um, Chris really helped me get into that Roussan. Uh, I actually call that wine the rustler because I didn't have the contract for it. We call it a late night rustling of grapes. You know, maybe I went and picked it when no one was looking, but we won't tell anyone. Uh... Winemaking wasn't the only thing Anthony learned from Via Creek. And that's really where I picked up the... uh... The whole farm thing, Chris and Joanne had a restaurant at the time downtown, and they had a couple of goats, uh, chickens. I brought in a pig program because I've always been passionate about pigs. We started doing Berkshires, and um, it was just a complete sort of farm stay job, and that's really where the idea for what we have here, the Royal Nonsuch Farm, came from. It was wanting to create that lifestyle um, for us. After two years at Via Creek, the winemaker at Denner left. Ron had been impressed with Anthony when he was an intern, and instead of hiring a famous, experienced winemaker, he decided to take a risk. Anthony became the chief winemaker at Denner in 2009. The first couple of years, it was really hard. I tried to get him to um, taste the wines with me. Yeah. And give me some input or maybe sit in on blending sessions, and he wouldn't give me anything. He said, you're the winemaker, make the wines. And uh, I realize now how much of a blessing that really is when, you know, I was scared shitless at age 24 when he gave me the reins and said, you're the winemaker. 
It's hard to overstate how rare this is. Most winemakers will work for more than 10 years before they get a chance to put their name on a bottle for a multi-million dollar label like Denner. I was fortunate that, uh, you know, he saw some potential and uh, we ran the facility as an alternating proprietorship, which means that we leased out space to other winemakers. Okay. So not only was I winemaker for dinner, but I was also the facility manager. So I got to manage seven other winemakers that all had their own vineyards or bought their own fruit and made their wine at dinner. And all of them obviously were older than me and more experienced and had degrees. But I also got to ask them questions and sort of had this safety net. And we created this group of um, almost like a think tank in winemaking where you could taste this, taste that, you know, hey, I've got this issue. What should I try? And, you know, seven winemakers, you're going to get 11 different opinions. In 2014, Wine Spectator pinpointed Anthony Yont and Denner Vineyards as the epicenter of West Paso's wine scene. I learned really quickly, I, I want to make wines that are unique and singular, and in order to do that, you've got to take a lot of risks. And you've got to make wines that maybe are not perfect or polished and then, you know, blend them together with something to make something that's aromatically unique and texturally, you know, intense and makes you think. I always, uh, the best way I can describe it is I want to make a wine that's suspenseful. You smell one thing and you taste something different or it's not what you expected it to be. After a few years at Denner, Anthony decided to put down roots in Paso. He bought his farm on York Mountain and started planting his own vines. It's a miracle that a lot of these, these are just twigs. We took cuttings off other plants and we stuck them in the ground. Most of this place is not planted on rootstock, uh, which is sort of the new way of planting vineyards all across the world. And we just took sticks and we stuck them in the ground and they be grow roots and they become plants and they have fruit and yeast eat that fruit and create alcohol. It's beautiful. And then this vineyard here, we're going to see the first grapes from it this year, right? Well, we started uh, planting in 2013. Our first harvest was just a couple of barrels, home wine because production was so small. But then in 2016, we were finally able to make the wine we wanted to make, and that's going to be bottled on June 1st. We call this the Royal Nonsuch Farms. The Winemakers podcast is inspired by the Winemakers of Paso Robles coffee table book. The Winemakers of Paso Robles coffee table book is the perfect gift for the wine lover on your list. It took more than a year of interviews and photo shoots to make this 328-page large format book. It's the perfect book to curl up with a glass of wine and escape to wine country. The Winemakers of Paso Robles. Check it out on Amazon.com and at WNMKRS.com. That's WNMKRS.com. There are only a few first editions left, so get yours today. The Winemakers podcast is supported by Passarobleswineries.net. Passarobleswineries.net is the best resource for planning the perfect trip to Paso. Decide where you want to taste, eat, stay and explore all in one place with the only comprehensive map of every winery, distillery and brewery in the area. You can also find tasting coupons and hospitality discounts. Text SPECIALS to 24587 for coupons. That's SPECIALS to 24587. 
And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Paso Robles Wineries. PasoRoblesWineries.net is the best place to plan your next trip to Paso. What are you cooking? A chicken. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> With which wine? The wine off here. We're going to have an all-estate meal. Okay. I like people that cook interesting food, and usually people that cook interesting food care about where their food comes from. So, yeah. you know, that's one of the things with this ranch is we try and raise most of the proteins that we eat. So uh, we raise our own pigs, our own lambs, our own chickens. We got to put the bird on. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. So it's been brining since first thing this morning. And we'll pull it out and season it from there. I'm just going to throw a little salt and pepper on it, and then we're going to... Sh- uh, truss it real quick. I like to keep it simple. Taste the bird, not the seasoning. Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's check the fire. Okay. And we'll see if we're ready to dump that. We've got some nice coals going. Feels hot. We're going to center the bird a little bit. Push the button and it turns. Then from there, fantastic. we're going to throw the lid on, vent it a little. And let it cook. There you go. Okay. It does the rest for us. Okay, into the cellar. Into the cellar. Which I've been warned is going to be cold. It's going to be cold and it's going to be nasty to get there. But this is what keeps people out of here. <laughs> what do you mean it's going to be nasty? Well, we've got a little mouse problem in the shop there. We walk down a flight of stairs, through a covered carport, and over to a shabby-looking door on the side of the house. We pass through this little room stacked with tools and farm implements and open a second door leading into a pristine wine cellar. The first thing that catches my eye is a black pig's hoof sticking out of a barrel of salt. The next thing I notice is the volume of wine stacked floor to ceiling. It doesn't seem possible to fit another bottle in this room. We're underneath the house, but it's not entirely under the house. Half of it faces out. And the person we bought this from had uh, six kids, and they homeschooled them. So this actually, at one point, was one of the kids' bedrooms. It was a lot nicer than this. Um, It had carpet in it, and we pulled out the carpet. And because this was on the north side of the house and half underground, we turned it into the wine cellar. One of the things for me as a winemaker that is so important is research and development. So we spend a lot of time traveling the world and learning about other wine regions and other wineries. And we also buy a lot of wine from other places. And I'm not a collector of fancy wines or real high-end wines. I'm really just a collector of the wines that mean a lot to me. And most of the wines that we have in here are are places that we've been or places we're really passionate about. And and there's really nothing that's unobtainium here other than it's really important to to me and Hillary. So this is one of our favorite estates uh, probably in the whole world. This is in a region called Gigondas. And Gigondas is just north of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. And this is Chateau de Saint-Combe. And the original cellar here um, was from the Roman era. And they have old concrete tanks from the 500s. But... They don't use them, but they're there in this underground cellar. And he makes sort of the wines of the style that I want to make that are pure to their place. He doesn't destem anything. It's fermented in concrete. It's aged in neutral oak. Oh, it uh, sounds like your wine. They're just 
They just are what they are, you know, so we take influence from that. Here, this is uh, Tokai. I'm a big fan of Hungarian oak, and um, it is a botrytized wine. So it's made from grapes that have been um, infected with botrytis or the noble rot, and this is from Hungary. And this is a woman okay, and her daughter. Okay, you have to explain daughter. this. Hang on, wait. Okay, so noble rot is a uh, mold called botrytis, and it infects the grapes and sucks all the water out, thus concentrating the sugar and the acid naturally, and you can ferment it, the most famous of which is Sauternes in Bordeaux. But in Hungary, uh, they probably started doing it long before they did in Bordeaux. And uh, because Hungary was occupied by the Soviets, they lost pretty much two generations of winemaking. But there's a um, mother and daughter who hand-dug caves underneath their house um, in the early 1990s, and this is the wine off their uh, place. And I was fortunate to have dinner in their house last spring and brought some of those bottles back. So um, this is Jacques Bavard from Montrachet. Haven't had this one yet. This was a birthday present for my brother. Nice. And um, this is this is Uni Blanc uh, from our friends Ryan and Nicole Pease from Pays Wow, what a label. Yeah. Um, some artwork gone into that. There was marijuana involved, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I'll show you one more since we're on New World. This is one of my like iconic Game changer wines. This is uh, the Clary Ranch Syrah from Arnett Roberts in Sonoma Coast. And this is the first time I had a wine that was like a, a red wine from California that was 11% alcohol and perfectly ripe and didn't miss a beat. And it's just spicy and savory. And um, these guys just do a fantastic job. When you're picking a wine to go with your dinner, is it hard to choose one? We don't collect for the sake of collecting. We collect for learning. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, there's really nothing in here if, if we open that I would be sad is gone. Okay. You know? An empty bottle is worth so much more than a full one. Because okay. you've got the experience of sharing it with someone okay. and the memory of drinking it. Aside from his extensive collection of inspirational wines, Anthony's cellar is also an archive of wines he's made. This is Grenache. Okay. So this is from 2015. This is my favorite vintage of Grenache that we've made. Why um, was that year so good? 15 was a very, very challenging vintage. It was probably the hardest, lowest rainfall year of the drought, compounded with four straight years of drought conditions. And then we had a very cold, sort of wet, but not rainy spring, and that created a terrible fruit set. So we lost about 40% of our fruit in that year. Mm. Then in summer, we saw three inches of rain in July in one storm. I think the data going back said the most rain they'd ever seen in the month of July was a quarter of an inch, and we saw three overnight. So that sort of relieved some of that drought stress on the vines and what you ended up with were these wines that were um, powerful but elegant at the same time. I mean, it's sort of like throwing a football lineman in a ballet dress and like it works. And that's what this this wine is to me. I mean, I, I want wines that evolve. Okay. They evolve over time. They evolve on your palate. They're not what you expected them to be. They create an experience that's more than just that sensory of drinking them. So. And you are probably one of the youngest winemakers in Paso. 
I, I'm still on the younger end of the spectrum. Uh, but you I've, have such a good reputation. Does that go to your head? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to. You know, um, it's... I love what I do. And, and, I mean, I think you guys said it earlier. It's the journey as opposed to the destination. And it's nice to get some recognition from time to time from the press because a lot of times you're head down and working your butt off and doing night harvests or cleaning the drains or fixing a RO unit or, you know, the worst thing I've had to do is like clean out the septic system because, you know, 40% of the job is being a janitor. And then every once in a while you'll meet someone in the taste room that says, you know, we drank your wine at our wedding or, you know, those are the things that really do it. And, and for me, I've always made the wines that I want to drink as opposed to trying to make the wines that are going to get the credit from someone else. And I, I really do think that that's the best or the only way um, to make true wines. And if you're making true wines, then at some point they'll be recognized. So where did you come up with the name, None Such? Uh, my Missouri Roots, my, my favorite book of all time is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. And as part of that story, uh, Huckleberry Finn and Jim are floating down the Mississippi River, which I grew up on. And they're in this little town in Arkansas, northern Arkansas, and they meet up with these two. They're called the Duke and the Dauphin, or at least that's what they call themselves. But they're definitely not royalty. And they may be more swindlers than anything else. But they decide they want to put on Shakespeare in this little town in Arkansas, and no one comes. And so the next night, they put on a show called The Royal Nonsuch Farm, which is billed as a comedy, a dramatic comedy. And half the townspeople come out, and it's just the Duke naked on the stage, painted, dancing around, doing like crab dance. And half the townspeople are, they're so pissed off that they've been sort of swindled into this joke that rather than not go the second night, they tell all the other townspeople, hey, you need to come see this show. So they sell out two nights of this. And the third night, getting a little greedy, now all the townspeople come, but they've stuffed their pockets with all the vegetables from their gardens to throw at the Duke on the stage. And before (laughs) they get into, after they've taken their money, before they get into... um, the show, the Duke and the Dauphin and Huck and Jim all scurry out to the raft and go down the river. And to me, it's just sort of this constant reminder never to take yourself too seriously and to remember your heritage and your roots and have fun with what you do. So what have we got here? So this is the 2016 Royal Nonsuch Farm. Okay. And this is a co-ferment, meaning that we picked all the grapes at the same time and we fermented them together. So you can blend wine or you can blend grapes, and we chose to blend grapes here. And the first vintage of wine, we didn't have the entire vineyard producing, so the blend's going to evolve over the next couple of years. This first vintage is 50% Syrah, 30% Graciano, and 20% Grenache. One wine, one site, red. All here. All here. So we fermented the grapes in concrete, and Mm -hmm. then it spent the first year of aging in neutral, what we call punchins. They're big barrels, Uh, and these were not no new flavors in them, so they're just sort of a neutral vessel. And punchins breathe a little slower than a regular barrel, which this is a regular barrel. 
just because they're a little larger. And then once we hit that year mark, we racked it into a Fudra, and a Fudra is a really big oak tank. Um, and it's gonna spend the last little bit in oak tank, and we're gonna bottle this June 1st. Okay, so is that why is, it hasn't got a label on it yet? Yeah, I just pulled this out of the sample valve of the oak tank. Oh, wow. And uh, this, is a, this is what we call a barrel sample, though it's really more of an oak tank sample. Ooh. Bold. Yeah. Spicy. Very, Very spicy. Yeah. Creamy, though, still, too. Yeah, still approachable. Uh, you know, again, we want wines that evolve, so yeah. they should be a little tight early, and then as they age, especially in bottle, we want to see them loosen up and become more interesting, more savory, more spicy, uh, but also a little more approachable on the palate. All right, well, cheers. Congratulations. Cheers. Thank you. To your first year. Chicken. chicken. <laughs> let's go get that chicken. Let's go get, let's check that chicken. All right, let's pull this bird. What are you saying? Go for it. If you carve it right now, all the juices that we've preserved will fall out. Okay. Uh, whereas if you let it rest for 20 minutes, then the juices sort of integrate back into the meat. Mm -hmm. And which wine would you recommend drinking with this chicken? All of them. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about chicken is it's like, what doesn't go well with chicken, you know? <laughs> everything tastes like it, everything drinks with it. Um, we're gonna make a nice juicy, you can go hearty red wines with the dark meat or white wines with the white meat. Yeah. And then we're gonna take the carcass tomorrow and we're gonna make a stock out of it and we're gonna make risotto for tomorrow night's dinner with the leftovers. Oh, planned. Hey, Ramona. Do you wanna do a wishbone? Let's do a wishbone. Okay, you ready? <laughs> One, two, three. Oh. oh, you won! You won! <laughs> quick, make a wish. Yeah, quick, make a wish. Do you wish for another chicky? Yeah. Chicky. Don't forget the oysters for me. So I will save you the oysters and the Pope's nose. I never knew about the Pope's nose. Is it the two thin bits that go it's either side? Here. So, okay. Don't I mean, be afraid. To be honest, I don't really like the skin. So if it's all skin, okay. That's the best part, other than the oysters. But there's no meat in there. Just eat it. Okay. Quit complaining. <laughs> there's your oyster. What's the best bit of the chicken? So you've got a red here, I've got a white. Yep. And I think you're right, they both go. I think pairing is all about enjoyment. Whatever you like is gonna work. Ramona. Do you want a piece of chicken? Yeah. Yeah? What's that? It's really good chicken. Thank you. <laughs> what is your passion? Do you, you, you love farming, but obviously winemaking has become such an important part of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, which one is more important to you? Yes, Ramona. I need more chicken. That's my passion right there. <laughs> um, you know, I'm probably, I'm getting more into the farming because I'm seeing that's really the way forward to making better wines. Uh -huh. I'm probably better as a winemaker than I am a farmer. Um, and Hillary certainly makes us a lot better at farming than um, I would be without. But um, for me, it's, it's about working the land and having the land become what? This mm -hmm. and this and that, you know? And that's what defines you. 
That's what defines the Royal Nonsuch Farm, at least. Okay. I hope I'm a little more, <laughs> I'm a little more complex than that, but who knows? <laughs> well, as you said before, you are no better than your grapes. Nope. And you are what you eat. You are what you eat. You want more chicken? The Winemakers Podcast is a production of Cellar Media, hosted by me, Louise Houghton. Executive producer and creative director, Lauren Matic. Co-produced by Louise Houghton and John Meek. Original score, editing, and sound design by John Meek of 10 Minutes Early. Live sound engineering by Dean Lee. Additional writing by Paula Carverhall. Additional editing by Miguel Coez of the Music Interval Theory Academy and additional sound engineering by Brian Vasquez. The Winemakers series was created by Julia Perez. For show notes, links, and more, please visit wnmkrs.com forward slash podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Winemakers Series. And please subscribe, share, and rate us on iTunes. Seller Media.